Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to Alpha Chat, the FT's business and economics podcast. I'm Shannon Bond. On this week's show, the robots are coming, but will our automated future be good for us? Author Martin Ford stopped by our New York studio to chat about a world with fewer jobs and increased pressure on workers as machines steadily take over. The thesis comes from his book, The Rise of the Robots, which won the FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award this week. Next, Facebook says it will take the vast social data it collects from users to power the company's artificial intelligence software, software that could, one day, cancel your cable subscription or order flowers for you. Finally, I'll speak to two of my FT colleagues about the cooling U.S. retail market as we head into the all-important holiday shopping season. Let's get on with the show. Robots captured the 2015 Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year awards last night. Andrew Hill, the FT's management editor, joins me in New York. Andrew, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So tell me a bit about the winning book, which is Rise of the Robots by Martin Ford. Yeah, Rise of the Robots is one of those books that has sort of caught the zeitgeist of the moment about automation and jobs. And unlike the second machine age, the Brynjolfsson McAfee book that last year was on our shortlist, um, this is a book with a far more pessimistic outlook. And essentially, Martin Ford's saying, if public policy doesn't change radically, then the whole of the capitalist economy is under threat and we are headed, in any case, for a jobless future, whatever the public policymakers do. So it's a, it's a pretty gloomy outlook, particularly for journalists, because he talks about the white-collar professions that are going to be eroded by automation. Yeah, they can all do our jobs for us. Thanks, Andrew. You sat down with the author, Martin Ford, this week, so we're going to take a listen to your chat. So congratulations again. Well, thank you. So tell me about the evolution of Rise of the Robots. Your first book, The Lights in the Tunnel, on a similar theme, was, was self-published and, and, and received a lot of attention, some of it quite hostile. Um, why did you write the second? Okay, well, you know, I started uh, thinking about this back in, in uh, really the mid-1990s. I mean, I, I started a small business, a software business in Silicon Valley, and um, at the time I started that business, uh, producing Windows software was relatively labor-intensive. I mean, software was shipped on physical media. You actually had to put things in boxes, and people had to send that out to customers and so forth. And so there was a lot of work there for what you would think of as average people. I actually outsourced some of that to another company that, that specialized specifically in, in, in fulfilling orders for software companies. So there was work there, but what I found is that within just a few years, uh, that really just kind of evaporated. Um, and, and, you know, software now, of course, is, is gone entirely digital. Uh, and similar things, of course, have happened in music and, and to some extent books as well. So I, as that unfolded in my own small business, I sort of came to the conclusion that what we were seeing was, was really a preview of 
what was going to scale across the entire economy as robotics and artificial intelligence came, came into being. So that's what really motivated me to write my first book in 2009. And as you say, uh, you know, initially that, that, this issue at that time was just completely off the radar. Um, the, that book did get more attention over time, but it took quite a while. Um, Why do you, you think know, it was off the radar, the issue of automation? Was it because we were in the aftermath of the crisis, or was there a reason Well, you know, th this is an issue that's been around for a long time. I mean, it goes back at a minimum 200 years. I mean, this alarm has been raised again and again, uh, and it's always turned out to be a false alarm. Uh, in my latest book, I talk a bit about the Triple Revolution Report, which was a report uh, in the 1960s presented to President Johnson, where, where a very smart group of people predicted that the United States was on the, the brink of massive disruption then. And of course, that didn't happen. And that's been the case you know, again and again. So I think that people have become very skeptical of this. But we, I believe we are now at the moment where the technology is finally there, when, when the disruption is going to happen. And the fact that, it's, you know, that, that we've had these false alarms so many times in the past really makes it difficult for people to accept this. Um, and so that's where a lot of the resistance comes from, I think. But in, in this book, I've tried to ground it much more. And so you will, in the book, for example, find lots of economic data and charts and so forth showing how these trends are developing. Um, and you also see lots of very specific examples of how this is actually unfolding and, and impacting different kind, types of jobs. So but your purpose was very clearly to raise the alarm. That's right. I mean, I do think that this is a critical issue. I mean, I think that over the next couple of decades, this is quite likely to unfold as just a massive disruption. I think that... Um, it could put just tremendous stress on society and also the economy. And, uh, you know, it is subject to an acceleration. Things are just moving faster and faster, and that continues to be the case. And therefore, this is something that could unfold much more rapidly than we might expect. I mean, it might be on top of us before we know it. So I, I do think it's critical to start thinking about this. And, and really, we need to involve lots of smart people across uh, across our society, across, uh, you know, the academy and government, uh, policymakers and so forth really need to start thinking about this and uh, potentially devising some ad adaptations, some policy measures that will allow us to continue to thrive in a future where this unfolds. Is this thesis making you popular among your friends in Silicon Valley and on the West well, Coast where the view is generally optimistic about the, the implications of new right. technology? Uh, there are definitely you know, some very techno-optimistic people in Silicon Valley. And I, but I, the, the point that I try to get across is that, you know, that, that's fine and, and it can be a very techno-optimistic outcome, but we probably need to adapt to it. We can't just assume that everything will unfold in a very optimistic, utopian way all by itself. And I think that definitely more people are coming around to that. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people who are deeply involved in artificial intelligence research or robotics research. And, and actually, some of those people are even more aggressive than I am. I mean, some of those people consider the things that I'm saying to be really, very conservative. Uh, you know, I think in terms of a 10 or 20-year time frame where perhaps this will unfold. But I've definitely talked to technical people that, that are thinking more in terms of 5 or 10 years. So, and of course, some of them go as far as to talk about you know, the singularity, the crossover between artificial intelligence overtaking human intelligence. And I mean, it, that you cast a little bit of doubt on in the book. Right. I mean, I, you know, I don't dismiss that, uh, but I do think that if it happens, it's probably much further out than, than the kind of more practical economic impact that I'm talking about. What, what I'm really focused on are very practical technologies that are an extension of what we have already. Um, you know, it, it just is really about what we might think of as narrow or specialized artificial intelligence getting better and better and being able to take on more of the, the really routine, repetitive jobs in the economy. 
Um, but it certainly is that possible that things could go beyond that and we may eventually have a true thinking machine. We may have a machine that can really uh, replicate what a human being can do in, in terms of, of thought and, and, and cognitive ability. And of course, if we get to that point, then most people assume that, that soon after that, we will then have super intelligence, that the machines will, through a process of recursive improvement, as they design better versions of themselves, will become even more intelligence, perhaps dramatically so, than, than human beings. And that, that's I think something that we may eventually have to be concerned with as well. And of course, you, you do see some very high profile people talking about that already. Stephen Hawking, most notably, has, has warned that uh, artificial intelligence might someday be an existential threat. And I think that's not a ridiculous idea. It's something that we may have to worry about. But I think that if you talk to the people really working on AI, that they are relatively humble about where we stand today. I mean, they, they understand that that's an extraordinary challenge and it's probably going to take quite a while to get to that point. So that's really a concern for the future. For the, for the time being, I think the, the impact on the economy and on the job market is, is something that we really need to be concerned with. So I guess the broad question is, for the future in a world of greater automation, are you forecasting dystopia or utopia? You know, this is something that could turn out to be dystopian or it could turn out to be utopian. It's a choice that we will have to make. Uh, if you look at the way things are going right now, I think if we just take a hands-off approach and let things unfold, then we're headed for soaring inequality. We may get into a situation where we have high unemployment, where people are, are genuinely suffering from economic insecurity. I think that that's sort of the default path if we do nothing. But if we make the appropriate adaptations to this, if we, we ensure that everyone in our society is able to benefit, at least to some degree, from the innovation that I think we're going to see over the next couple of decades, then it can be a much more utopian outcome. We can imagine a future where no one has to do a job that's dangerous or that they hate or that is extraordinarily boring, that you know, machines and technology will take on more and more of that. Uh, but obviously that utopian outcome is going to occur only if we figure out a way to ensure that people do have an adequate income to survive and also to go out and, and act as consumers in the economy and, and continue to drive our, our market economy. So that's, that's, I think, an important choice that we're going to have to make over the next couple of decades. I mean, w one thing that you seem very clear on, which other books on this theme, notably Second Machine Age, don't necessarily um, agree with, is that there will not be more jobs in hitherto unimagined areas, as happened with previous industrial revolutions. Why do you think the jobless future or the greater mass unemployment is an inevitable consequence? Well, there, there are two things that I'd really point to. And the first one is that machines are now beginning to think, at least in a limited sense. You know, technology is taking on cognitive tasks. And that's really quite different from what we've seen in, in the past. Um, I think that the, the classic example that a skeptic would offer is the mechanization of agriculture. I mean, it used to be that in the United States, most people worked on farms. Now, virtually no one works on a farm. It's, it's less than 2% of our, our workforce. And yet, obviously, that turned out to be a great thing. Uh, food is now much cheaper in terms of our incomes. Uh, and people did um, manage to move on to other areas, other things that were more fulfilling, uh, more, you know, other types of work. And so the skeptic will look at that and say, isn't that essentially going to happen again, that same exact process? And the thing to keep in mind is that, that agricultural technology 
was extraordinarily specific. It was a mechanical technology that was specific to agriculture. It didn't scale across the entire economy. And in fact, when that disruption occurred, there were millions of jobs lost in agriculture, but there was the whole rest of the economy out there to absorb all those impacted workers. At the time that that happened, of course, you had a rising manufacturing sector and people moved into factories. And then later, manufacturing automated and then people moved into the service sector, which is where nearly everyone works now. Uh, but this time around, you're going to see something quite different. Now we've got machines that are taking on cognitive tasks, and it's a, it's a true general purpose technology. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's going to scale across the entire economy, across every employment sector, every industry. So it's very kind of hard to imagine some new sector arising in the future that's going to be labor-intensive enough to absorb the millions and millions of workers that are potentially going to be impacted by this. So I think that's really what's different. Yes, to this point about the, as it were, white-collar professions, there's been a lot of focus in, in reviews of the book and in, in talking to you about the threat to uh, professions that hitherto might not have been um, uh, threatened, uh, from law to healthcare to education uh, to journalism, in fact. Um, which do you anticipate will be the next white-collar jobs to fall to um, increased automation? Well, I definitely think there's going to be a very strong impact on white-collar skilled jobs. I mean, one of the conventional views continues to be that this is primarily something that impacts low-skilled workers that don't have much education. But what we see is that, in many cases, the more skilled work is actually easier to automate than some of the lower skill work. And the reason is that it really requires only software. It can, it can be automated using the same computer that now sits on a person's desk, as opposed to a low-collar type job. You might need an expensive robot, and you need hand-eye coordination and machine vision, and all of that is very expensive. And it's also, in many cases, very difficult to, to um, achieve a, a level of capability that's comparable to humans currently. So it's actually much easier, in many cases, to automate more routine uh, cognitive type tasks. And so I think that we're going to see this impact uh, really all types of knowledge work. Any anyone who is sitting in front of a computer doing relatively routine, predictable things, manipulating information in some, some way uh, is going to be susceptible to this. As you say, we see an impact now on, on entry-level journalism and on document review in law firms. I think that will scale out. It will um, begin to impact really anyone that's doing any kind of routine analysis or writing, you know, reports to upper management where you come in and you do the same type of work again and again. All of that is going to be uh, susceptible uh, eventually. And, and which jobs, if any, are immune or at least most resistant to being automated away? Well, in, in terms of white-collar work, it would be currently those that require the most creativity, where you're really generating new ideas. And the problem is, of course, that a lot of workers do this some of the time, but they, send, they spend a great deal of their time doing more routine things. And what's going to happen over time, I think, is that all that routine work is going to essentially evaporate, and, and there will continue to be a need for the more creative tasks, but it probably won't be necessary to employ quite so many people. So it will become more of a winner-take-all phenomenon where the very best people, the most elite people, um, continue to be employed, but there's less general opportunity for more average people, I would say. And what has to happen to avoid the dystopian outcome, the gloomiest outcome that you paint? What has to be done? Well, if you believe, as I do, that ultimately this is going to be really dis disruptive and it's going to impact you know, potentially millions and millions of jobs, particularly those jobs held by what we can think of as average people, then 
ultimately, I, I think the only solution is going to be a relatively unconventional one. We're going to have to do something genuinely uh, outside of the box. And I, what I advocate in the book is that we need to begin thinking about something along the lines of a guaranteed income, where everyone in our society will have access to at least a minimal survivable income, whether or not they are able to find a traditional job or whether or not they are able to work enough hours to generate a, um, a, a sustainable middle-class type income, they'll have exact, you know, access to at least a minimal survivable, or survivable income. Do, do you think that is a feasible solution? Well, you know, you have to say in, in the context of today's political environment, it seems almost unthinkable. Um, I think that the, the reflexive reaction to it uh, on the part of many people is that it's socialism, it's uh, just a massive expansion of the welfare state and so forth. Um, and, and that's understandable, but when you really look at, at what I'm proposing, it's, it's certainly not a new idea. It's an idea that's been proposed many times in the past. And the interesting thing is that in, in many cases it has not been a leftist idea at all. It's been an idea that's been proposed by some very conservative, even libertarian economists in the past. Most notably, Friedrich Hayek was a big supporter of the idea of a, of a guaranteed income. And, and the general idea is that you give people what amounts to a market-oriented safety net. So you give people an income, and then they can go out and participate in the market, as opposed to having the government take over more and more, have, have the government involved in providing housing and food and services to people, or having the government take over and run industries in a way that might artificially generate uh, more traditional work, I mean, which is you know, uh, sort of what we see as, as I think, the, the default solution to this. So I think, that, I think that many conservatives and libertarians, if they think about it, would actually agree that, that the guaranteed income is actually a much better solution because it is market-oriented. It's a way to adapt the free market economy and keep it, keep it going so that it will, the, our system can continue to thrive in the future, even as all of this unfolds. So I've heard Larry Summers talk about the comparison with the Industrial Revolution, and he raised at one point in a, in a talk I heard the fact that the Industrial Revolution had big leaders like Bismarck or Gladstone who were proposing and, and putting in place reforms that amounted to a way of mitigating uh, the worst effects of the transition from one Economy, type of economy to another, and he was lamenting the fact that we don't have these Bismarcks and Gladstones. I mean, is there a? Do you think this is there is a gap here for political leadership in order to come up with a plan as radical as yours? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, this is something that politically just seems completely almost off the radar still. I mean, you you now obviously the issue is getting some more attention, and I think that's a great thing, but. We, I think, have a hard path ahead of us in terms of really bringing this, this issue into focus and, and getting enough public discourse and debate and, and proposed solutions so that we can, we can begin to move it into the political arena. I mean, that's going to be an extraordinary challenge. Um, uh, the biggest part of the challenge is that, you know, like it or not, what I'm proposing does involve redistribution. I mean, it's going to be... Um, in some way or another, providing for people that, that are not able to generate sufficient income through traditional means. And uh, I think it's fair to say, especially in the United States, redistribution is probably the most toxic word in our political vocabulary right now. I mean, most politicians don't want to say the word unless they're disparaging it. So how do we get from where we are now to a future where, where we've got something like a guaranteed income? Or if not that, then some 
some, I think, equally unconventional solution that amounts to more or less the same thing. I, it's it's a, a difficult challenge, I think. Uh, right now, the best thing that we can all do is begin to to talk about it and uh, bring it to, to the attention of as many people as possible, I think. Is there a a role for humans in an automated future? Well, I think that there will always be a role for humans. I mean, I'm certainly not arguing that all the jobs are going to disappear. I suspect that, that you know, as far as I can see into the future, um, there certainly will be roles for people, but I am concerned that those, those roles may be har- harder to come by and that they may require really quite an extraordinary level of, of training and education and, and, and cognitive capability and so forth. And therefore, you know, a very large percentage of our workforce may, may really have difficulty finding a foothold in the economy. So, you know, the solution to go forward is to make sure that, that those people who are equipped for those opportunities, that they're able to do that, that we can leverage their talents and, and move things forward. But at the same time, we also need to make sure that we take care of everyone to some degree. We can't have an economy in the future where, you know, 5% of our workforce is able to find good middle-class jobs and everyone else is, is you know, struggling to, to survive at all. That doesn't make for a strong society, and it's also not going to make for a strong society because, or, or a strong economy because we need vibrant consumers out there. We need people with adequate income and purchasing power who can actually buy the things that are produced by the economy. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Now on the line from San Francisco is Hannah Kuschler. Facebook is turning to humans to power its artificial intelligence products, Hannah wrote about this week. It's using its 1.5 billion monthly users to teach machines how to fulfill almost any task. Hannah, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So what is Facebook doing? Okay, so Facebook's artificial intelligence products, as we know, the, the biggest one that we know of, I think they're working on a lot of different things, is, is called M. It's like a personal virtual assistant that lives within the Facebook Messenger app um, and will answer any question. So it will answer anything from the things that we're maybe used to asking, things like Siri and Cortana and Google Now, like, you know, what's the weather, when does the train come, all that kind of stuff. But it will also ask answer really complicated tasks. So it's been very successful apparently at cancelling people's cable subscription by, you know, calling up, going through all that awful process. And that's kind of helpful for those of us who don't want to sit on the phone right for an hour or two trying to get that done. Yeah, definitely. I would love to be able to try it. Unfortunately, it's only being trialed by 10,000 people in the Bay Area and they seem to have managed to not include any journalists in their pool of people there. Um, But yeah, so it can do complex things in the idea is you should be able to ask it anything. Now, I think at first people thought, oh, that's just this great like idea to try and experiment with the service. But what I learned when I interview Alexandra Lebrun, the head of Facebook's artificial intelligence platform this week, was that that isn't just a way of making, you know, consumers really interested in using M. The idea is, is that that means that M can collect all this information about any task uh, that anyone might want done and how to fulfill it. To do that, they have to have humans at the moment, but it's using humans is a way of getting to that data, which is just really hard to get to. As he said to me, you know, there is no massive database of conversations about buying flowers in the world. We're the one that we are building it. You mentioned Apple and Google and Microsoft, who are also all, you know, investing in AI, you know, spending a lot of money. Facebook 
overall on R and D, I think spends 1.3 billion, and so some of that is is things like AI. But there is something different. I want you to, to get into a little more about what Facebook can do that its peers can't do. That is about that that human source. I mean. It's essentially turning everything we're sharing into data, right? Yeah, definitely. So if you have, you know, talk to Siri, I mean, Siri barely ever understands me, might be the accent. But, you know, um, if you talk to Siri, you'll realize you can only do certain things. And, and that's because it's been programmed to say, you know, if Hannah says, is it, do I need an umbrella? Ch- tell her the weather, right? Which, you know, seemed intelligent at first, but after a while gets frustrating because there's all sorts of other things I might want to ask. What um, Facebook does is it actually has a team of humans sitting there ready to answer queries that the machine can't. And so the machine so far, for example, has learned to do weather by itself it's apparently since it was started in march um in you know in private and face internally at facebook they um they have um taught it how to tell jokes which i was very excited about but turns out it just means it knows how to retrieve a joke from like an online database of jokes um um but it is now still the humans that are cancelling your cable subscription, telling them you don't want to pay a toll. Organising weddings apparently is also something that someone was um, trying to do through the app. Um, but the machine is learning and watching every time the human says, OK, you know, if they say cancel my cable, I have to call this. I have to go through these certain stages. And eventually the idea is that there'll be enough, you know, big data that it will learn how to do it. So it, it seems that we're giving Facebook like a lot of power here, right? We're, we're essentially providing them with the tools to really control a huge part of what could be the automated future. Are there risks there? I mean, there are, of course, you know, Facebook has a history of people being anxious about how much information it has on us, um, about its um, approach to privacy. Its approach to privacy has changed a lot, actually, during the last couple of years. It's realized that that could have been a really damaging thing for its brand. And it's tried to be more careful and let users have more control. Obviously, by opting into a service like M, there's no way of doing that without giving them all that data, right? You can't say, I want I want the service, but I don't want you to store what I'm requesting. So you are handing them them power. You know, a lot of people have said, well, maybe M isn't just a personal assistant. Really, it could be the future of the browser and the future of search. You know, why would I go to Google and like look through 25 links to find what I want if M already knows me well enough that it'll just do it for me when I ask in Messenger? Um, and that also gives them power potentially to, you know, hook up with certain other companies, partners and providers. And, you know, maybe the flower shop that gets the order from Facebook is going to be the best flower shop and the all the other ones will wither on the vine. So some big questions about before before we quite get to the future, maybe that we saw in that movie, the movie Her. But, you know, it, it does seem like there, there's a good trade off here. I mean, you know, if, if Facebook can do all these things for me, you know, how much of my privacy am I willing to give up? Uh, you know, it seems pretty useful. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah, for joining us. Thank you. Next up, some big questions for U.S. retail heading into the holiday shopping season. The U.S. economy is showing signs of strengthening, but consumers aren't buying clothes. And third quarter sales at some of the biggest U.S. retailers have been sluggish. I'm joined by Lindsay Whip, our Chicago correspondent, and Eric Platt, our U.S. capital markets correspondent, to talk about what's going on. Welcome to both of you. Thanks Thank for you. Having us. Yeah, this is my first time. Welcome, Eric. Okay. We'll be gentle. 
Uh, so, Lindsay, I'm going to start with you. Um, what What's happened uh, in the third quarter to some so some big uh, retailers like Gap and Nordstrom? Well, we're having Gap uh, reporting a bit later today, but they've been um, struggling for, for a while now and are shutting stores across North America, 175, leaving about 800, as they really are struggling against the much more popular fast fashion brands such as Forever 21 and um, Inditex's Zara, H&M and the rest. And the reason for that is that it seems that the younger generation these days are not so keen on having brands, sort of basic brands with the brand name blazoned across the front or back of the shirt or the or the hoodie and are very much wanting their individual style that they can mix and, mix and match, but for very cheap prices. And that's where they're doing, that's where the fast fashion are doing very well and also have incredible um, supply chains in which they can get many more lines onto the floor very, very quickly. But we're um, also seeing problems at the high end too, right? Exactly. And um, that's what's quite interesting about it too, is that some of the high end, whether it's sort of Michael Kors or even partly um, arguably Coach as well, you're sort of seeing this sort of almost, not non-stop, but a lot more frequent promotions, which then makes it difficult to back out of. And people see those, that's then start seeing those as sort of more ubiquitous rather than special. But in the third quarter itself, we had the likes of Macy's, which um, had to downgrade its forecast for the full year for sales to just 1% when analysts were expecting 3.1%, which is a pretty big downgrade. And even Nordstrom, which, you know, has been very much a uh, seen as a very popular store and it's got its business model right and it's you know it's got both online doing well it had the uh the um off rack doing well as well as the sort of high-end stuff and yet they had very sort of downbeat sales they rose but really only just on a same store basis and so the idea is well you know if Nordstrom can't pull it off so, as well as they have been doing then is there a problem with the consumer right and so so when we look at the data I mean wage growth has been improving of course, people who are still in lower income brackets are feeling the pinch. But overall, it seems like there are other things now that are competing for the, for the dollars that consumers have in their wallets. What are people spending money on instead of clothing? Um, well, yes, before I get into that, there is one slight issue with the um, weather this year, which always seems to be a problem for retailers, whether it's too hot or too cold. And um, my first autumn in Chicago has been too warm, apparently. And that is one of the reasons why many of that's been attributed at least to why I think some of the winter clothes haven't been selling so well. Right. No one, um, need, no one needs a coat quite yet. Not quite yet. No, it's not my cardigan on, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but then, yes, in terms of the broader economy, um, as we saw um, with the US um, GDP revised figures the other day, you know, consumer was still looking very strong with 3.2% pace of growth in that area. So what are they spending it on? It does it does seem to be a lot more on the services side of things. Auto sales have been pretty robust through the year, and um, in particular the segment of SUVs, which is kind of interesting given that the sort of urbanization of the U.S. population is suggesting fewer people want cars. But maybe that has something to do with the lower fuel prices, which a J.P. Morgan Chase Institute report has showed that it's not only um, a people saving from the, from the excess money they're getting from the lower fuel prices, but also they're spending it more on experiences like going out for dinner and other types of entertainment. We want to be able to to eat well and go enjoy things, and we don't aren't quite as worried maybe about getting the latest uh, the latest fashions in our wardrobe. But Eric, it's not just sluggish sales um, that are hurting retailers; they're also having some real issues with their debt, right? Yeah. So 
One of the big things after the crisis that you heard was a lot of companies deleveraging. They were cutting their debt load so that they, they had healthier balance sheets. And God forbid there was a crisis, you know, they, investors wouldn't be in trouble. But retailers have kind of done the opposite. So since the financial crisis, the debt burden of both high-grade and uh, high-yield companies, junk companies, uh, has more than doubled to $183 billion, according to Barclays. Um, and when you look at that, some of it has been driven by companies like Macy's, which are high-rated, but they've been spending money on shareholder returns, issuing dividends, buying back stock, uh, instead of investing in their underlying businesses. And that's created a problem. When you look across the industry, if you look at like Neiman Marcus, for instance, they were levered up once in a buyout, I believe, in 2005, and then again after the financial crisis because they were seen as being able to weather the storm. Because they're, they're high-end. They're like a yeah, they're high-end. Like if, you, if you're shopping at Neiman Marcus and you know, they've got Valentino and Jimmy Choo, you're, yes, you are impacted by the decline in the stock market or the volatility, but you know, you've had a stable paycheck. You're able to buy those new pumps if you really want them. And so Neiman Marcus was driving by earlier this year. They were going to IPO. It was going to be one of the like marquee names of the year and a big kind of bellwether for retail. And they've postponed mm-hmm. um, sales in their final fiscal quarter of 2015 uh, grew 1.9%. And that was a market slowdown from, I believe it was above 6% for the three years prior. And they actually cited in one of the recent documents with the SEC, you know, there's been volatility in markets, but that's not what hit the bonds. It was when Nordstrom and Macy's said that they were having troubles. Because if Nordstrom and Macy's are, God, is, is Neiman too? So, Lindsay, going now into the, the Christmas shopping period, um, you know, and certainly in the U.S., go, right, we're, we're coming up on Thanksgiving and bl- the infamous Black Friday. I mean, this is a period when retailers make up to, you know, up to a third of their annual sales. So what can we expect? I mean, are things going to look better for them in the next couple of months? Well, there is a sort of, should we say, sort of semi-robust figures out there um, from the National Retailers Federation that are suggesting that this holiday season, which they count as November and December, should see about, a, uh, I think it's a 3.9% rise, which, you know, which, which seems okay, but it is slower than the year before. And um, that's what sort of, which sort of peaks interest really is why that, why is it that it's slowing now? And one of the reasons potentially is that we're now hitting a year from when the oil price started to really decline sharply. So that sort of increased sentiment you got from having more money in your pocket from the lower fuel prices is starting will will start to diminish quite dramatically potentially the other thing is that we've noticed is a sort of big split between those who are sort of earning under fifty thousand dollars a year and those that are earning over or much much more over where you know i've met people recently who have had to you know take on second jobs and they're not spending as much as they did the previous year because there's just too much. Rents are going higher, are getting higher. Mortgages are higher if, or more difficult to get. And once you get them, you know, you're paying more than you would be for your rent. And so these people, are, you know, they've got a lot of a lot of things to be thinking about as well as trying to sort of buy for their kids over Christmas. I think something really interesting on that is when we started the year, a lot of economists said the consumer is back and they are going to be helping retail. You will see it in the second, third, and fourth quarters, we got behind, we got out of the way of the port strike on the West Coast, which a lot of retailers had blamed. Mm -hmm. Which was like holding up inventory. Exactly. It was like, I think it was Gap that said, oh, we got all of our Easter clothes after Easter. So you immediately have to discount them. And you know, they're not, it it can't sell. Um, And they don't have those problems this year. And the consumer is clearly spending somewhere else. And so if they're not going to retailers, you know, what does that mean for the malls and the REITs that have kind of made that big play? 
Well, I hope you both will be spending lots of money in the <laughs> next couple next couple weeks and months. Thanks both of you for joining me. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. And now it's time for our follow-up segment with Amelia Mahasek. Hi, Amelia. Hey, Shannon. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited about Sherry Turkle from last week and our conversation about conversation, or your conversation. It was very engaging. You were really into the idea, I thought, of well, there's also putting a, away the phone. <laughs> there's also a little bit of pressure when you're talking to someone who's written an entire book about conversation <laughs> and how important it is to engage with people. You got, feel like you've got to have like a really serious conversation. It's very meta, <laughs> I think, is what they called. Although I learned a new term for meta, which is subatomic at a conference this week. <laughs> we're all going to start using subatomic. Subatomic, yeah, particles. We're all particles. But um, So I thought that was a great segment last week. I like the idea of never of having to be bored you mm. know um just putting all of those electronic things away but that's partly a reflection of my job and spending <laughs> every waking hour and some sleeping hours online have you made any changes no but i love the idea that it only takes six minutes to feel bored i think that was one of her points these days i'm going to test it on the weekend see if i can relish <laughs> the boredom and i also thought it was quite Meta that we had an extended version of the conversation <laughs> <laughs> offered uncut uh, for those people who didn't like the short segment. So I, it made me wonder whether we could do shorter segments in the podcast and then have a longer. I mean, we have Chatterbox, which right. is the one-hour segment, but maybe we could do. And if you really wanted, to, you know, play music, and if you really wanted to hear more of this conversation, yeah, I think it was the other ten minutes. And what else do we have? Oh, uh, the other segment I thought we could actually do more on is evaluation of tech companies. It's an endlessly fascinating subject. Yeah, Um, quite quite mysterious, frankly. Exactly. (laughs) It appears. And I think this week we've got Square pricing, uh, match pricing, which you've been following. And And I'm interested in why this is different to the 2000.com bust. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, how are the valuations, how do they compare from that time? Is it possible to compare them? Perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's, there's no direct um, equation just because the, the operating environment has changed mm-hmm. for them. I'm not sure what the answer to but that is. But certainly it seems like this, this crop, at least of the tech companies, I mean this crop has been private for longer than most of those companies were mm-hmm. right when they went public. Yes. So there is a comparison there. And I think Sujit was suggesting that, that also previously – Sweat equity, if you like, the options and stock options that everybody's potentially underwater mm-hmm. in when these things float at lower valuations. Last time around, that many more of them were issued at public valuation prices. Right, right. Um, so that the impact, maybe some people have taken money off the table already this time around, so the impact on the individuals working for those companies may or may not be directly comparable. But yeah. So I think we could do, perhaps we could revisit uh, once we've had these IPOs. So I thought that both those segments were something we could build on. So my big takeaway from last week was another buzzword, unitasking, as the next big thing I like it. from the Turkle manifesto. I've been, trying to, I've been trying to be a little better, I mean, even before I talked to, to Sherry, about being better about paying attention to the thing that I'm doing at the moment because I do get very distracted. And it's true, it's, you have a, this perception that maybe you're getting a lot done, but certainly for writing, for you know, think, work, prepping for a story, prepping for an interview. It's not doing anyone any favors if I'm constantly switching over to look at my email, switching over to look at Twitter. 
doing whatever. So I've been trying to do that, close all the tabs and just focus on the one thing. Although it will suit, um, uh, although it's going to sound sexist, a male world where that's a <laughs> unitasking seems to be a sort of built-in skill set. Um, <laughs> that they can just shut off, shut yeah. off other things. I'm Whereas uni-ta- women, women I'm have to. I'm now. <laughs> that's true. When Cardiff comes back, he'll tell us he's just unitasking. <laughs> no, Cardiff is very good at that. Though. I mean, Cardiff is like the person in the office, right, who yeah. puts his head down and just gets whatever he's done done i mean i my problem is i also i like the distraction right i like like, that's why i like the open office so that's what i would say in journalism (laughs) i think i'm not sure unitasking is a part of the core skill set it just depends what kind of writing you're doing i guess thank you amelia thank you shannon what book did you read this week um so i wanted to recommend more generally um the fiction of adam johnson so he wrote the orphan master's son which won the pulitzer prize for literature a couple years ago it's fantastic novel um, set inside North Korea, which just seems like how would you even begin to, to do that? He's an American and he's not North Korean. Um, um, but he's done this and he does this just amazing job of drawing this world and these characters. And his new collection of, of short stories came out this year. And I actually got to interview him this week. Um, and so he's just delightful. He's just like, a, he's, a, he's a, as well as being a writer, he's a teacher. He teaches writing at Stanford. Hmm. Um, and he's one of those people, he's a natural teacher. He's just really engaging um, and really thoughtful about how he approaches writing. And the collection of stories is is interesting. So it's, they're not all, I would say they're all dark in a certain way. They're, he's kind of dealing with a lot of emotions and pain, um, but in really fascinating ways. And there's a story that, sort of feels like it flows out of the orphan master's son which is about defectors who are now in south korea um and so i really enjoyed it so the new book is called fortune smiles and the earlier book is the orphan master's son Hmm. what about you look out for that um well amory slaughter's book has occupied my thinking this week which uh it was on the business book of the year awards ft mckinsey sponsored disclosure um it is the book that i've probably had the most discussion about in the last oh three months, I suppose it is two including months, on this podcast it came <laughs> including on this podcast, and uh, I went back to it again this week to sort of examine some of the um, arguments about how we can close the gender gap pay gap so that's that's occupied my thinking. I recommend people uh, take a look at it. Lindsay, what are you reading or watching or whatever? So I've just finished reading um, Gang Leader for a Day, who's, which is by the sociologist Sudhir Venkatesh. And he was doing his PhD at the University of Chicago when he started sort of hanging out really with, um, with some gang leaders in a now demolished estate, housing estate in the south side of Chicago. And he sort of did this sort of semi-personal, but also very much a kind of investigation into what it was like living there, what it's like to be a gang leader and what drove them and what didn't, how they lived and and really the issues that they face and the, and the communities around them, how they kind of interacted with them. And it's a real fascinating insight into, into those communities. And Eric, what's on your smartphone or tablet or e-reader? So one of the... Uh magazine pieces that I found so interesting recently was from the New York Times magazine uh, by Jonathan Mahler. It's called What Do We Really Know About Osama Bin Laden's Death? And it was tackled in a kind of interesting way because it was a media take in the end, but it just kind of opened my eyes because, oh yeah, I read this in Vanity Fair, I believe, but maybe maybe I don't really know what happened and maybe I should be a little bit more distrustful. I've just reviewed a book called Crunch Lit, 
which is by a, um, a British academic called Katie Shaw, which is essentially looking at um, fiction books about, and indeed plays and movies, about the financial crisis. So it's taking a look at the kinds of books that um, uh, came out either inspired by, just before, just after the financial crisis book uh, broke, uh, books uh, like um, uh, Sebastian Falk's A Week in December, The Really Excellent Union Atlantic by Adam Hazlitt. Um, it's a little reading list. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's, not, it's not my favourite book about books, mm-hmm. um, but it does give you an idea of some of the books that you could go back to. Um, and, it, and it poses an interesting question about whether actually we'd have been better listening to novelists ahead of the crisis than economists. Um, for a little bit of an early warning signal that the crisis was coming. Absolutely. They may have had a better view into this, actually. Yeah. So one of the books I recently read, it's been out for a while now, but I um, I finally got round to it, was In Defense of a Liberal Education, um, which is by Fareed Zakaria. Um, and um, I feel like it's a little bit self-serving as someone that had a liberal education. I have a history degree. Um, but it's basically arguing that... We can't learn, you know, technology and keep up with the times. Actually, a liberal education creates a good base for people to teach themselves how to learn, to be curious, to understand things about the world, which means will serve them well throughout careers as technology changes super fast. I think it's an interesting one to read when there's so many books at the moment about, you know, robots taking over. And it's kind of saying, well, maybe the answer is not to try and do what the robots do better, but do what robots definitely can't do yet, which is, you know, discuss Shakespeare. That's all the time we have for now. Thanks so much for listening. You can go to ft.com slash alpha chat for show notes, links, and more information. Please send us your recommendations. You can call and leave a voicemail at 917-551-5012. You can email us or record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to us at alpha chat at ft.com. Or you can tweet me at Shannon Parai, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. Amy Keene keeps me on track every week and produces our show. Thanks for listening. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Autobotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.